if you're going to build like a humane pro people food system, there's some distribution logistics that we need to take really seriously. I feel like people understand that we have to farm well. I think there's kind of some growing understanding that retail has to be done well, but there's also distribution and handling in the middle that like just nobody involved in the food reform movement understands and they don't want to understand. Oh, it's dirty. And it involves like diesel fuel and like pallets and it's not cuddly. There's tracking numbers and stuff. Barcodes. Yeah, like you have to track things and you have to know how much is coming. And if it's not arriving, you have to like be able to do something about it and like act on it and know who to call. Like there's data and this stuff gets me gets me going. I mean, this is what I love now. (laughs) When I first started in merchandising at Whole Foods, because I came up through the stores, I worked in operations for a few years in several stores, and then one of the guys who's on the national buying team, and one day I just was like, Hey, how can I learn to do what you do? And he said, oh, well, we got a couple openings coming up. So why don't you apply? And I ended up applying to two jobs at once. And then mm-hmm. one of the guys called me and was like, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. And ended up saying, I'm going to give you the job. Just go through the interview. So I took the job. I didn't know what I was in for. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was totally different than operations. And there was no training either. They just sort of threw you into it. Yeah. And you had to figure it out. Thankfully, I still had the relationship with the guy that recruited me. Right. And we ended up still staying friends but the point i'm getting to is that first of all like to do it well you need data can you describe the job that you were doing there real quick so i started on stores and so i was a grocery manager and a you know store level buyer for a few years and then i became the regional grocery buyer in the northeast region uh, which is new york new jersey connecticut and then then got promoted to be the regional grocery coordinator so i was responsible for $250 $250 million a year in sales from 15 of the largest stores in the company after mm-hmm. literally just working in one store previously. <laughs> and this is what I said, oh, I want to do. I was like, what did I get myself in? It was the worst year of my life, honestly. It was the most stressful year. But it was also the year that helped me understand all this because it was essentially a category management job, which is a, it's a career. It's a profession. You can do trainings for it. You can get certified. Of course, Whole Foods didn't. I found this out later, years later. You can actually do trainings on it online. But there are sort of three verticals that I was responsible for, all of which rotated around the fact that I had sales and profitability targets every quarter because we were publicly traded. And that's why there was so much pressure. But the first thing was category management, which is deciding what you sell and what you sell it for. The second was promotions and discounting, like what you actually put on sale, particularly seasonally for displays and different marketing. And the third thing was something that I brought to the table because I realized we need was the focus on EDLP, everyday low price and value pricing. So I was a quick study. I was like, oh, we're really overpriced here, Whole Foods. And I made it so that my department gained, sorry, this is inside baseball. We gained 300 basis points in margin in a year, but we actually ended up lowering our prices Wow! because our costs, we lowered our costs and we negotiated a lot of allowances from suppliers. And so, so fighting the good fight to make Whole Foods like not whole paycheck so much. <laughs> and I did that at National too. When I, by the time I left the National team, I was on the National team for almost a decade. The average price in my department was three dollars and fifty cents, and we were within ten percent of most competitors, five percent of like the really important ones like Trader Joe's and Kroger. And once again, I added same formula: three hundred fifty basis points in gross margin. And I did the same thing in each of those jobs. One I did for a little over a year and the other I did for almost a decade. It was about 
partnering with new suppliers and developing supply chains, actually growing supply chains, like actually finding ingredients and packaging and putting stuff on shelf in stores, giving stuff a chance to be tried and repurchased by consumers and doing that over and over again. Right. And yeah. This- so the process you're describing here is not just like, let's bargain down and get like the best possible price and get volume discounts, but it's also about like, hey, let's help these suppliers who are making food firm up their supply chain so they have consistent supplies. They're able to make things more smoothly. It's less work for them to make what they need to make. So it's really about like actually making the food system work better maybe was the (laughs) the job. Look, I mean, I stayed with Whole Foods because they actually at the time really believed in the notion of win-win partnerships. We were in charge of those partnerships. So the way we would do it was we wanted suppliers to grow with us. And eventually if they, they needed to grow elsewhere, they would understand that we would have a pipeline of things to replace them too, that we continually had a pipeline of new product coming in, but also we developed really strong relationships with core suppliers. For instance, I was the single largest negotiating partner on my team with Organic Valley, which is a billion dollar dairy co-op. So we were 10 plus percent of their business. And by the way, another 10% of Organic Valley's business is logistics, backhaul. So you talk about like, what's not sexy in the food system, they realized they were shipping milk one way. Well, they had an empty truck to fill the other way. Mm-hmm. I worked really closely with them on both. In addition, I negotiated three wholesale contracts with United Natural Foods. Not me alone, but like, you know, with the, the distribution team. And then after I left Whole Foods, I've negotiated another three or four wholesale contracts with smaller retailers. So nice. I really understand the wholesale piece. But the thing with category management, what you're doing is in a given grocery store, and most grocery stores are pretty consistent. They all come from the same model of King Cullen, A&P, like they all have the same DNA. You've got even Whole Foods, you have 75 or 80 different product categories in the grocery department. So my department grocery was about 30 to 35% of the store sales. There's other departments like produce, meat, seafood, bakery, supplements and body care, and then deli prepared foods. Not talk about any of them. We're only going to talk about grocery. In grocery, we had about 75 categories. We used a calendar for 10 months of the year. We took the holidays off from this process. It's called the category review process. Every month of the year, you would analyze four to five categories, maybe more, maybe sometimes six or seven categories. You would look at what was selling, who your biggest suppliers were, what your cost trends were. You would look at macroeconomic factors like commodity prices. My team at Whole Foods had a commodity team. We tracked the CME weekly. We looked at derivatives. We looked at speculation. We looked at wheat, corn, soy, diesel, plastic, wood. I mean, we didn't fuck nice around. I know someone was looking at that. <laughs> we, were, we were looking at Well, most retailers do. They don't want to tell you about it. So we were watching that. But 40% of my sales was organic. So there was no, nothing like that for organic which we tried to create later on, but I'll tell you, I could tell you more about Mercaris, which is a separate company now, but we work really closely on developing organic supply as well as growing non-GMO supply. The point of category management is to figure out what you're selling, what customers are buying. That's why, even though I'm quote a marketer, I don't care what customers say. I don't care what the studies say. I'll read them now. I'm like, that's nice. And then I'll go and watch what they do. What are they shopping for? What are their actual purchasing? And it's another reason why I'll fight to the death with people who tell me about individual responsibility. I'm like, I'm all about collective responsibility. Category management is essentially commodifying collective responsibility. 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I see both sides of it because it's the large scale. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of your job to see like, okay, what are people looking for? What needs are people trying to fill? And it's my job to help them get that done and put out there what they're trying to get in the way that's most responsible. And you also have to like help the store feed itself and make money doing that. Well, at the end of the day, all the stuff that I'm telling you that I was doing was so that I didn't lose my job. Mm-hmm. Whole Foods had a 90-day gu- guillotine. It was a publicly traded company. Every quarter, you're only as good as your last quarter. It was fucked up. And I stayed in merchandising for 30 plus quarters, which is why my cholesterol is so high. You know, I'm pre-diabetic. I've got all these other health issues. It fucked me up. The food system is famously good to the people who work in it. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a decent, not high paying, like a decent paying job. I realized after I left Whole Foods, I was paid about half what my peers and other companies were, <laughs> uh, which is fine. We raised our kids on it, you know. The point is category management, you look at this, what customers are buying and you look at it by category, you look at it by brand, and then you do the fun stuff. You start networking and talking to other suppliers. You talk to like your incumbent suppliers. What do they have? What do they want to get rid of? You look at new products, you get new trends, you get to try new products. I spent half my time in spreadsheets looking at data and I spent the other half of the time either negotiating with suppliers or because I was a nut, I went to 150 stores a year. It sounds like a lot, but I would do one trip a month and I would do maybe two days, three or four stores per day. And I would always be in our stores. Like I wanted to know what was going on on the ground. I also wanted to be accountable, which is not what they are. They don't do that anymore. I would be accountable. I talk to our associates in the stores and I say, my name is Errol. This is my job. This is what we do. Show me what you're doing. Show me what you think about what we're doing. Let me please hear my opinions about what you're doing. <laughs> I would spend time with grocery managers, with store managers, with marketing personnel. I was very visible and accountable at the time. And that's also because I was an abrasive prick in the office. And I had a terrible reputation for being demanding, unreasonable, not to my team. My team loved me. People stayed with me for like eight or nine years. I maxed out their pay rates. I gave them bonuses. We drank together. We traveled together. But I was an abrasive prick to the bureaucracy. And that's why I eventually got pushed out because they, they got tired of the big Jewish mouth. And that's who won. That's who's running Whole Foods now. I say it's like, I kind of now understand what Trotsky felt when Stalin took over. <laughs> I'm not a Trotskyist. I just, I like to joke. I'm like, I kind of understand now the original Bolsheviks when Stalin took over. Seeing what happened. What did he do? Sometimes, <laughs> you, just gotta, but, sometimes you just got to get on a boat. Yeah, I, I didn't get shivved. I managed to escape. Um Anyway, so category management side was super important because you're figuring out what you sell. And we would look at, in terms of data, we would look at dollar sales. We look at units, like the velocity. We look at gross margins. So how do you calculate gross margin? Retail price minus cost divided by retail price. Very important formula. We would look at average retail price. So we're always conscious of pricing trends. We would look at average cost trends too. All this stuff, we did this with 75 categories, five to 10 categories per month. I only had a few people working with me. And you know, like I said, they stayed with me for a while because we had a commitment. The purpose of this was to actually build a better retail set and therefore a better food system. People knew I was a missionary. I wore my politics on my sleeve. I kept a Harry Cleaver book in my desk and a Kurt Vonnegut book on my shelf. You know what you're getting into and Whole Foods with their libertarian ethos was like, He's making us money. We'll put up with him until I wasn't convenient anymore. 
something that keeps coming up for me, I think a lot of bad behavior in business gets blamed on, oh yeah, you know, they're seeking the bottom line. And I'm like, no, if they were doing that, a lot of things would be different. They wouldn't keep serial sexual harassers around who cost the company lots of money and judgments. Everybody knows that more diverse executive teams make more money and yet they're still predominantly like wasp men. So don't tell me that they're after the most possible money because if they were, a lot of things would be different, right? So it, it sounds like you're making your employer plenty of money and yet there was just like, there's this divide problem. And that's really kind of what it came down to. Was- well, here's the other thing, Sarah, despite all that, I'm a numbers guy, I'm a materialist. And so every quarter I would run a report for the executives that I was hoping they would read on the earnings call. And they never fucking did because they pushed their own narrative. Listen to those earnings calls were just like a fucking joke. And I would tell them what was going well. So the other thing, like I said, we had a value price strategy, right? And so we would negotiate lowest cost of goods, dead net pricing on thousands of products. Like we were very serious about getting the best possible cost and then passing that through to our, our customers at reasonable margins. And the other thing that I did, I oversaw the private label program. I didn't manage it, but anything that was private label that was grocery that went into my stores, I had a say on. And so I helped launch over 600 store brand private label products in my career there. Those are also value plays. Now, the reason why I'm telling you about this, and also I mentioned earlier, I had a promotions marketing department that we oversaw like products that we put on sale. And I grew that from like a $20 million a year program to a $250 million a year program. And it was based on a pass-through philosophy. Whatever we took on cost, we passed through to the customer. And if you know how gross margin works, we actually made some margin on it, but the customer got the same discount we did, and sometimes more so. So we, we ended up creating a huge value strategy, increasing the number and rate of discounts that were going to customers. And it's really between the, the years of 2008 and 2014, that's what grew Whole Foods. We were the diesel fuel that grew the company, even though they'd go on the earnings call and talk about veganism and conscious capitalism and that they were selling avocados for cheap. Anybody who was in the company knew that grocery was paying the bills. Grocery was paying the rent. That's because we were actually implementing the company philosophy as it was. So the problem here was around that time, they had a number of investors come in during the um, downturn and put money into Whole Foods and were all of a sudden starting to exercise more. Say at the board level, they also had institutional investors that wanted us to focus on fundamentals. You know what I mean by that, right? What just, do they mean by that? They just mean bottom line performance. And at the time, Whole Foods' bottom line was great. You know, it was like 2 or 3% EBITDA, whereas most retail is 1% or less. And that's because Whole Foods' margins were inflated. They were too high. And so a lot of my department's challenge was keeping those margins high while keeping our prices down and lowering our costs, which we did. Mm-hmm. But at some point, and this is why I'm going to explain to you why it didn't work out. And what happened was every quarter we would run pricing and sales data. We would look at our assortment, what was growing, what wasn't. And the folks who ran the company, the big mouths, who you probably know their names, decided they wanted to match price with Walmart and Kroger and Safeway. Those guys all run off of a 22 to 23% gross margin. So it's before or after the Amazon purchase? Way before. It was was 10 years before. They decided that they got it in their head. They wanted to compete on price. The problem is Whole Foods is running a 40 so you just do the math. How are you going to make up for that 15 points? Well, what they started doing was launching more of this private label product 
but they started mashing it on price to these other retailers. So if you know math, you know what a weighted average is. So if you take 20% of your department, really what the private labor program is 20% of sales, and you are going to be selling it at like a 10% gross instead of a 40% gross, you have to make up that 30% gross on the other chunk of your department. However, there's pricing perception on that other side of the department as well. Because people aren't just going to look at your $1.99 soy milk and then wonder why the next price in the category is $3.99. There's got to be something in between. And so that was a lot of the pressure on my team was to manage that margin. We managed to do that, like I said, for over 25 quarters. But at some point, it just the they kept pushing price down on high visibility product. You couldn't make up the difference. But the other thing that we discovered, this is real inside baseball, <laughs> we didn't control pricing on a lot of those products. The regional teams did at the time. There was 11 operating regions domestically. And every time there were lower prices on the key value items list, like the really high visibility stuff, they would raise thousands like- of other prices to make up for the difference. So you're talking things that are typically loss leaders, like say milk, bananas. Yeah. I wouldn't even say loss leaders because we were still making some margin on them. Exactly. They're known value items, milk, bread, bananas, butter, avocados, because it's the whole food shopper, apples, you know, whatever, your gala apple, your chuck steak, et cetera. So we developed the KVI list. The only difference between now and then and now is they execute the KVI list. We have, mm-hmm. They're using the same list we did. Whole Foods just couldn't figure out how to execute it because it was like whack-a-mole. They would force us to lower all these prices. We would then go and pound the pavement with suppliers to make up the, the difference in margin through promotions, through new products that weren't price sensitive, through EDLP programs. We would find hundreds of millions of dollars a year, every year, except then they would go and mess up the strategy because they would raise prices on a bunch of other items that would then throw off the uh, comparative sales. Like customers would be like, wait, we just read in the media that Whole Foods is lowering all their prices, but this and that and that that I buy every week just got more expensive. They actually still do that. I actually, I go into Whole Foods every once in a while. I don't do too much of my shopping there. And I realize they haven't figured that out yet. And every other retailer who has figured out how to compete on price, Kroger did this about 20 years ago when Kroger centralized their buying the first thing they did when they had partnered with a third-party data provider called Dunhumby to access customer loyalty data and figure out what their customers actually were doing in their stores, what they wanted, what they were missing out on. The first thing they did is they lowered price on like the top thousand items so that they were competing on price with Walmart. It was very disruptive to the rest of the grocery trade because everybody all of a sudden realized Kroger was in it to win it, mm-hmm. but it saved them. And that's what Whole Foods attempted to do, but they didn't have the discipline And it's one of the reasons why their comps first started flagging. But then when they got rid of people like me who knew how to negotiate, within 18 months after I left, Sarah, they got sold to Amazon. I'll just say that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Um, like you're talking about, you know, if you're running a retail operation like that, you're trying to meet like thousands and thousands and thousands of people's needs, you know, like through these stores. Daily. Yeah. And you got to keep all your stuff on the shelves. You got to make sure that the prices actually make sense. Not just if they're affordable, but like they make sense to people. Because otherwise, like you're saying, people notice something's off. People understand because they'll look at a shelf. Mm -hmm. They'll be in the stores and they'll see 10 things. You know, they'll like, oh, which one do I want to buy? You know, which soup, which can of soup? And they'll see three items that say store brand 365 and they'll be a buck 69. And then they'll see another five items that are like a brand, let's say Pacific Foods, and they're three sixty nine. They're practically identical. Why the fuck 
<laughs> is one less than half the price of the others. They're both organic. They both are minimally processed. They, you look at the ingredients, it's not, it's not all like guar gum and like methyl cellulose. It's actually food. It's just organic soup on the shelf. I wrote about this recently in Forbes too, just understand how the pricing works in private label. What they've done is they've figured out how to make the ingredients as close to the national brand equivalent as possible. They've negotiated large quantities, so they're actually getting some volume discounts. Like instead of buying it by the pallet, they're buying it by the truckload, which reduces their logistics and handling costs. But then they just take a lower margin on it. On that buck 69 soup, they're maybe making 15 points. However, that 369 soup is probably making 45 points because they're trying to make up for the loss. Not the loss, but the fact that that other soup, which is 20% of their category sales, is just pulling their whole margin rate down in that category. And Whole Foods, as a high margin retailer, didn't understand that the goal of retail was margin dollars, profit dollars. We used to say, you don't take margin rate to the bank. And they never understood that because they wanted to stay at a premium level to keep their investors happy. So they couldn't get a 3% net income if they lowered their margins to 30. You know, they barely scraped by at 1%. So I guess maybe it's a bit of inside baseball, but that's just sort of how something works when you see it on shelf with pricing. The problem with that is that race to the bottom, the notion of wanting to be cheaper and cheaper. With most retailers, what they're going to do is cheapen the ingredients, cheapen the supply chain. They're going to go overseas for packaging and manufacturing. They're going to start using lesser quality. And at some point, they'll also figure out other corners they could cut. But the other side of this is with race to the bottom pricing. The other thing that was happening there was one of the reasons why I left was they were cutting labor expenses. They were cutting in-store labor. Yeah, say the store staffing kind of went down and down and they had a lot more part-time people not benefited. When I was there, I started out full-time and I got benefits within three months. It was amazing. It was better. I was making better money than working at nonprofits or farmers markets. And they treated us pretty good. By the time I left, the in-store working conditions were barely 40 to 50% full-time. And they had this whole class of permanent part-time employees that were not eligible for benefits. Mm -hmm. The average hourly rate went down. We used to have like the highest in the business. It was like 19, 20 an hour when I was there. And their turnover rate skyrocketed, obviously. They started okay. combining teams. And then I think the final nail was they were so focused on lowering their GNA, their general administrative expenses, as well as their store labor rates, they decided to lay off 3,000 people. I was very outspoken against it. Got a lot of appreciation from store level employees. And if you look on layoff.com, type my name, you'll still see like people writing about that 2015 episode. And that's when I, I left, pushed out. But the point of that was, once you start lowering prices and you start shaving points off your margin without a consummate decrease in your costs or change up in your supply chain model, it's going to impact your employees. Right. Well, it sounds like what you were working on in the store was, okay, we need to have some reasonable prices. We need to not be charging totally, totally premium all the time. Let's get this place organized. Let's have a good supply chain. Let's work with our suppliers to help them get smooth. You're working on the operational side of things to make the stores work smoothly, make them make sense, have low turnover so that they perform really well. And that is one place that you can get those margins. That's one way you can make the store pay revenue, right? That is one way to do it. And 
in my experience, it works quite well. I mean, that's how Toyota has been able to make high quality, affordable vehicles for decades now. That was kind of their formula. Costco does the same thing. There's a lot of operations out there that do it that way, but it's a little bit more work for management because what you got to do, like you mentioned, there's a lot of discipline involved. So what you have to do as a C-suite or a board or as you know an executive team is you have to assign people to be in charge of doing all of that work, right? You got to be reviewing those categories all the time, beating the streets, you know, talking to suppliers. It's a lot of work. You have to hire people to do all that hands-on work. You have to trust them to do the job. You've got to delegate all that stuff to them and let them do it. And that intensity of operations, in my experience, tends to not be something that C-suite type people tend to understand at all. They don't know what you're doing. They don't understand that it's real work and that it's adding value. They just don't know. Yeah, mostly um, airheads in the C-suite, in my experience. Yeah, it's like... Again, you do have operations that do it differently. You have people who understand operations in the C-suite and it's a beautiful thing, but it's not very common because operations is something the little people do and it's not seen as like real work. (laughs) Dirty. Yeah. So it never makes it to the C-suite. So that level of discipline never really gets instated fully into the business. Like it kind of sounds like you were doing that just because that's how you wanted to do it as opposed to a mandate coming from the top. Well, it's sort of two things. I figured out how to not get fired. That was the main thing. Like I figured out how to make money and I started applying that. And then my ethical component of why I, what I thought Whole Foods was about, but also how I wanted to create a supply chain. For me, obviously it was private sector for profit within those guidelines, within those parameters, how could I make it as effective as possible, but also as ethical as possible. And so those were how we, we thought about it. And it wasn't just me, obviously. I had you know, like-minded people on my team. People used to call me like a very pragmatic. It wasn't more visionary. It was more just like, hey, this is practical type stuff. Like if people want to eat organic, we have to make sure that we have the right quantity at the right quality in the right place and time for them. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen magically. And we also were doing it within the confines of agribusiness, within the industrial supply chain. This wasn't a farmer's market. I mean, I love farmer's markets, but it's very different. You know, it's like what the farmer grows and they bring it to market and they put it on display, hoping that somebody buys it and then they either donate, you know, or, you know, the rest. Like with us, those forecasts, that was a big part of my job was forecasting supply with our partners. And I would say on a good day, we were maybe 70% right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That sounds about right. 70% is good. On a bad day, we have real (laughs) bad days. Right. And, you know, there's some retailers that I think do a good job of this operations wise who understand supply chain and category management and aren't in it just to binge and purge. Like a lot of retailers, like especially the big publicly traded ones, I I mean, they're strip miners. They just strip mine supply chains. They strip mine suppliers. They do a little pixie dust marketing to make people feel good about it. But the U.S. retail sector is very diverse when you get into the independent regional cooperative level. And there's some really good operations out there that Despite the competitive pressure, I think still have pretty interesting programs. And then also it's one of the reasons why I feel strongly about, we've probably talked about the Kroger-Albertsons merger or like my feelings on Walmart, that if you would actually break that sort of scale up, you actually remove a lot of the pressure on these supply chains to compete downstream and race to the bottom. Or, you know, the other side of that is just to nationalize that stuff and take the profit motive out and put it under the uh, public interest, which is, you know, sort of food utility model. Oh, shit. Did I just say that? (laughs) 
Yeah. It's like, as someone who has worked hands-on in fields, I appreciate automation and I appreciate scale. That's what makes automation possible. I don't think humans were made to just like stoop over in the field 12 hours a day. I feel like we're alive for other reasons than that. So automation to me and scale are beautiful things. It's just that us as a society, we have not figured out how to do them in a way that's not, not run by rent extractors. And I feel like scale itself gets blamed for a lot of things that rent extractors will do, even if they don't have scale. <laughs> oh yeah. It makes yeah, it a lot more about that. Yeah. And it kind of gives a market concentration power, which is a whole different problem actually than scale. There's a kind of two different things that often coincide, but they are two different things. Something I want to take like a little side diversion in really quick before we kind of get into maybe more utility type stuff. And what would these logistics look like if a public utility were doing them? So you mentioned that the folks running Whole Foods at the time and you had just had really different objectives and ideologies. I'm curious, like what you saw in terms of like ideologically what they're interested in. You mentioned some like libertarianism and like very consumer choice oriented model of change, which is just the most convenient way to think change happens if you're selling high price food. It's a mythology. <laughs> it was and it's also it was a dogma mm-hmm. that didn't coincide with reality. And I'm a I'm a cooperator. I personally believe in the collaborative cooperative ethos. I'm not a command and control operator either. And what you had at Whole Foods at the time was this dogma, not only to compete on price, but to also assume that individual choice was optimal. Like that's what people were there because they wanted the kale and they wanted like the high price stuff. And it was our job also to shift that price reception with some really low price stuff. It was an ideology. It was not based in empirical data. That was where I ran into my problems was I was a materialist. I was like, this is what is going on. These are how customers buy. This is what we sell. Please, you know, sit with me. Let me help you walk through this. I'm not making this up. I'm not doing this to be difficult. I'm just saying that like, if you want to shift the the business in terms of more of a price conscious angle, we need to do it in a way that, you know, it brings the whole enterprise with us as opposed to something very disruptive that stands apart from the rest of the business that then drags the rest of the business down, which is what happens, right? It could have been a better way. We could have done it in a different way. We could have done it in a way like Wakefern, where Wakefern is a $20 billion cooperative of individual retailers. So it's not a consumer co-op. It's not like one of your hippy-dippy counterculture co-ops, which I love those. I shop at the local co-op. It's a big business co-op. But what they've done effectively is compete with Walmart and they compete with Kroger and Albertsons because you have all these individual independent operators who pulled resources and marketing and procurement and supply chain. And that's what I was trying to push at Whole Foods. I said, that's what we need to do. We need to have more cooperation between our regions. We need to have more cooperation between departments. This is a model that we can actually compete with as opposed to this sort of bipolar, like we're going to sell a bunch of really overpriced cheese and deli and celery water. And then we're going to sell you 199 pasta sauce at a 20 margin. It didn't make sense to the business. The result of it is they sold to Amazon for pennies on the dollar. And really within another year, probably would have been chapter 11 because they were running out of cash so quickly, but they would refuse to acknowledge that that was why, because the folks who were running it were just so dogmatic and bought into their own philosophies and still are, even though some of them have since left, left the company. With the exception of Walter Robb, who is a wonderful human being, who is, he was a oh. co-CEO. So like, I don't necessarily agree with him on everything, but he was actually great to work for. So I just want to give, give him a shout out. It was a tough time. And I think those price perceptions 
they doubled down on them. The more they tried to lower their prices, the worse the perception got because of the dynamic I said earlier. It was like whack-a-mole. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessary. I also want to point out that like other cooperative models have actually done a better job of dealing with this. Like the consumer co-ops have a cooperative organization called National Cooperative Grocers that a, actually a number of my friends and ex-colleagues from Whole Foods work for now. And they are creating cooperation between the co-ops. What they mean is they're pooling resources to get better deals from suppliers, to get better priority for supply chain, to share marketing and operational expertise. And then likewise, here in Austin, in central Texas, there are 600 convenience stores, mostly immigrant-owned, mostly South Asian immigrant-owned, that have done the same thing that have created their own cooperative called Gamma. Greater Austin Merchants Association, where they negotiate their own deals, they run their own trucks and logistics, they get new products, they have some of their own private label store brand that they do. And you could go into a convenience store and you see a little sticker at the gas station that says Gamma, and it's like, oh, they're part of the co-op. Oh, yeah. So like, that's the dang thing is cooperatives can be, don't have to be. Cooperatives can just be a fancy word for a cartel, but they can also be. <laughs> they can also yes. be a great way to to meet a lot of different people's needs and kind of get that <laughs> get those advantages of scale without completely turning into like a, a monolithic kind of business. So I guess that feeds us into if we were to take all the stuff that we know from working in the private end of the food system, and if we were to say, have some public utilities that did food handling and distribution, you know, like, for example, here in North Carolina, some folks are planting pecans, not many. But if we took the pecan industry seriously here, pecan milk can fill a lot of the same niches that almond milk does. Like pecans in general can fill a lot of that general angle. Like obviously they taste a little bit differently, but I don't know of anyone who eats almond butter because they're like, I just love the taste of almond butter. It's just what's there, right? It's a nut butter that's not peanuts. So pecans can fill a lot of that similar role. Pecans are wildly popular as an export crop from the U.S. right now. A lot of countries are really into pecans. and we just China buys here. a lot of U.S. pecans. That actually, when I was at Whole Foods, was an issue for our commodities team because we kept trying to get better prices and quantity on pecans. And Whole Foods was essentially competing with China. It just wasn't, you know, we weren't going to win. So like with pecans being a native tree to the eastern United States, you know, and they grow here well where it's humid. They're a really high value crop. It just makes a lot of sense for us to be taking a lot of our acres out of like tobacco and cotton and putting them into pecans. That would be a logical thing to do, but it's just not really Who happening. Love pecan pie. Yeah, it's good stuff, right? What if you made pecan pie savory? Then it would be a pecan loaf, right? I mean, <laughs> you could eat it like you could eat it all day. I mean, it's just pecans are amazing. There's actually some like Great Depression like meatless recipes because people couldn't afford meat and like nuts were a big part of it. So I'm sure pecan loaf recipes are out there somewhere. Did you um, ever read uh, Food of a Younger Land by Mark Kurlansky? I know the name. I don't know if I hit that particular book though. He went into the WPA archives to document what people were eating pre-World War II. It may be interesting to you because it may have similar, similar themes. Yeah, like a surprising amount of like, quote unquote, like US convenience food culture that everyone like blames on feminism in the 70s, like came straight out of the Great Depression, which is wild to me, like macaroni, like Kraft macaroni and cheese is depression food. Like that was... Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know who's blaming feminism on that. You got to send me that article so I can write a contrary to it because it comes straight out of the military industrial complex and agribusiness. It essentially, I mean, it comes out of the Eisenhower administration switching gears to subsidizing corporate agribusiness 
and saying that we were going to create a cheaper, more convenient, more abundant food system by underwriting, subsidizing private enterprise. Yeah. A lot of that stuff comes from like way before the seventies. Like there's a reason that like cookbooks from the fifties are like horror shows. Like the. Exactly. Yeah. The corporate food system was already well underway before that happened. So we got a little like we're a little lost. We're off track. Okay. So <laughs> there's all these <laughs> Seems like, like a problem with us. <laughs> right. They're like, Oh no, it happened again. So there's a lot of things that should be happening in the food system. For instance, we have almonds that really took off in California. I think there are many reasons for that. One of the biggest ones is that California is just kind of organized. The growers out there build packing houses. They build processing capacity and farmers out East just don't really do that. They don't see that as their job. California has always been an industrial food system and they develop cooperative, you know, and pooled resource relationships early on. As much as California has a reputation for like counterculture and organic, that's like, you know, maybe like five, 10%. I mean, it's big business and those big businesses are real smart. It didn't come out of an agrarian tradition. It came out of, it really built right into the industrial supply chains. Yeah. And it's wild too, because I think California gets this rap for like, that's where all the bad labor happens. And I'm like, that's the place where you hear about bad labor practices because they have unions and can talk about it. (laughs) It's got the best state level legislation in the country. Yeah. I keep telling people who like really kind of use California as like, this is the bad place. I'm like, you should be worried about the places that you don't hear anything. Go to the Rio Grande Valley, go to Immokalee, Mm -hmm. go to upstate New York. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Coalition of Immokalee workers didn't wind up getting involved in the Ben and Jerry's food chain up in Vermont for no reason. You don't call in the CIW because everything's fine, you know? <laughs> migrant justice. Big shout out to migrant justice. Good yes. folks. Yeah. So anyway, so that is all to say, you know, like we have some problems out east too. Like we have some issues with labor. We have a lot of problems with serious underinvestment in the food chain, especially in the south. We have this legacy of like, why do we need to grow anything besides cotton and tobacco? And so there's never really been investment in not just growing, but also handling everything else. So like, it's one thing to plant a pecan grove, but it's another one to go, okay, well now I have 16 tons of pecans. What do I do with them all? Like, where do I send them to get shelled? Who's going to turn them into nut butter? We don't have that processing capacity down here. And nut butter processing. I mean, just as a quick side note, a lot of it's been offshored. Mm -hmm. Ship the pecans out. They kind of shell them. They sell the intact halves like as a specialty good to people in in country and then the dust and all the little crumbs and stuff we turn that into butters and nut milks and yeah yeah i mean it's definitely something to you know that needs to be re i don't know what's insured like what's the you know the opposite to bring it bring it back you know domestically Um, but we also we need alternatives that are peanut free because there is facilities there's processing that's peanut but you can't cross contaminate those two if you're a farmer and you're like i need to figure out what to do with this piece of land or like you're a landowner i need to figure out what to do with this property are you going to plant pecans if there's nowhere to sell them? No. So we have kind of a, a little bit of a chicken and the egg problem because a lot of the stuff has really been left to private hands. And a lot of the folks who are working privately in the food system, certainly the folks who own land are already wealthy. They're not actually that motivated by money has been my experience. By the time you own land, you already have most of your needs met and your urge to bust your chops to meet other people's needs and make money for yourself by meeting those needs is just, there's not the motivation. That's why so many U.S. farmers grow corn and soy. They're dead easy to grow. Growing food for human consumption is more work. Pecans, tomatoes, things that people actually eat need a lot more intensive processing. So you have to think through a lot more. You have to plan a lot more. And if you're already wealthy, why bother? (laughs) 
So yeah. we don't have that processing capacity and we don't have an agricultural base that's interested in building it either for themselves. They're very happy to just kind of sit around and wait for someone else to build it and then complain that they don't get the right price has been my experience of how the food system out here works. So there's a whole lot of opportunities here for intervention from like literally anyone to do better. If you have experience in processing and handling, you could make a killing, but it's seen as something that's like too hard and too mysterious. It's really the, probably the most important thing in food justice. I've written about this, about why we need modest scale, minimal processing, mm -hmm. because these technologies they're not like too advanced. I mean, we're not talking about like recombinant DNA technology, like that everybody is so hot and heavy on. We're talking about like IQF, like mm -hmm. Clarence Birdseye figured this out a century ago. Anybody can do it. Canning, bottling, grinding, extruding. These are things that make fresh product into sellable, shelf-stable or extended life. And you know, I'm talking about this as a grocery person. Mm-hmm you can add margin, you can add value to it because of that. And if you're yeah. saving people time at home, that has value and that's okay to pay for. Yeah. It's also progressive. Like it's not reactionary here. Like it's okay to make people's lives easier. Mm -hmm. I think the whole move towards like home cooking and like anybody could do this and you should have this relationship with your food. And I mean, I've raised two kids. Everybody in my family has different dietary restrictions. I'm at the point where I fucking hate cooking. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't to be easy. I'm not like Mr. Convenience. We don't eat like microwave dinners. Like, let's just say that. But like some sort of minimum scale, modest processing, like it's okay. It should be encouraged. And I think we need greater capacity and infrastructure for it because it's viable businesses. It's mm -hmm. viable infrastructure. It, it's skilled work. You can hire people that then can have a career. These folks could then buy homes and raise kids. Like processing, manufacturing, that's the stuff that we've offshored, that we've deindustrialized. That I'm not saying like we need smokestacks everywhere and this needs to turn into like the industrial belt, but some modest scale infrastructure, which to their credit, the Biden administration has started. They've thrown a billion or two at it, which is, it's, it's good. It's a good start. But I think that's the major gap in the food system, particularly from a food justice angle. Yeah, for sure. So three things really quick. Food processing and careers. So, you know, that thing going around about how millennials can't afford to buy houses because they're, they're buying too much avocado toast. So <laughs> because avocados are such a huge crop now, I actually wound up inspecting a lot of avocado packing houses. Mm. And there's this one company in particular that just had a lot of facilities and they kind of ran each one the same way. And so once you've inspected one, you know what to look for in the next one. It's a little bit more easier. You, have, you save a couple hours of the day introducing the inspector to how the place works, right? So they're like, this is great. Let's have her do as many of our facilities as we can. And they actually ran a tight ship. So I felt like I was learning things from them also, which was really nice. Shout out to Mission Produce. Oh, right on. Yeah. Yeah, they're good. I think they, they send a lot to Whole Foods. So I was doing a lot of their facilities. And because I had this steady stream of work, I like to tell people, I bought a house because of the avocado industry. And, <laughs> you know, like it really added some stability to my life to have that stable source of gigs, right? And I bought a house because of the organic food industry. I work in a nonprofit now, or I'd be a teacher. Like I whatever wealth I have is because of some level of food processing and retail. Yeah. The idea that everybody is supposed to cook from scratch and that's what makes like you a viable person is wild to me because there's many reasons. There's many bones people picked with this. You know, one of them is gender, obviously. Another one, this is what gets me is like, if you're trying to escape the cycle of poverty, what you need to be doing every afternoon and evening, all the time you have at home with your kids is helping them with their homework. 
That's what you need to be doing. You do not need to be peeling fucking carrots. <laughs> I personally never peel the carrots. Mm-hmm. But yeah. No, I t- yeah. You're, you're right. Did you read Pressure Cooker? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good stuff. And then How the Other Half Eats by Dr. Fielding Singh. I don't know if I've read that one. I think I love that one, though. <laughs> there, it just proves your point because there are really broad sociological studies about mm-hmm. this stuff. And I think it identifies major gaps in the philosophy and execution of the food movement in this country. Yeah. It's just like if you're a working class parrot and you have any time at home in the evenings, which is not a guarantee because you're often working in restaurants or you're working somewhere else. You have jobs that are going around the clock. Hello, often. latchkey kids. Yeah. If you have any time at home with your kids after school, you're spending it on homework, like helping them get their lives launched so they're not trapped in the same cycle of poverty you are. The idea that you're going to be like roasting chickens with that time is just like, oh, my God, like get a grip. When I was at Whole Foods, we tried to cook, my wife especially, because I work 16-hour days, but we ate out at least twice a week. You know, we went to the diner, you know, where we got something. You know, there was like this little macrobiotic restaurant we'd go to and get like a really nice healthy meal for cheap. But what people have to go through to feed a family with a two-parent household, both of whom are working full-time, it's really one of the major reasons why I have really started to explore the notion of like, what do public food utilities look like? 